Labor Day on Monday, September 4th, 1933, was a good day for the Charles A. Klein family. Charlie, wife Emma, sons Raymond, 17, Arvis, 14, Kenneth, 12, and Billy, 4, as they sat down to eat their evening meal on a farm northwest of Drummond. According to the Enid Morning News article of September 5th, 1933, and sketches of my existence book by Raymond Klein, their world suddenly changed with a knocking at their door. Charlie and Emma both went to answer it to a man holding a machine gun. We need a butcher knife, he hollered as he barged in carrying a woman with his party. Charlie got the butcher knife as the man told him to use it to remove a shell stuck in the machine gun. The man asked about a phone, which they didn't have. Now, woman, I want you to wash and scrub this lady's legs where she has all this mud on her, the man told Emma. When you get to the wound, find something to stop the bleeding and dress the wound real good. The butcher knife didn't work, so Charlie said he had a vice and rods in his shop that would take the stuck shell out. Okay, bud, the man said. You carry the machine gun. Don't try any foolishment, or this pistol will be emptied of all of its bullets. Afterwards, Charlie said that opening in the gun barrel looked as big as a silver dollar. I was shaking like a leaf in the wind. Somehow, Charlie dislodged the shell. The man asked for their car, which had two flats, and the engine didn't work. So, Charlie told him Perry Nance, their neighbor to the west, had one. The man took the machine gun and left. Emma was having problems with the woman, according to the Klein book. She had fallen face down in the mud several times, and the bullet wound was bleeding much faster. The lady would scream each time Emma got close to the wound. She finally cleaned and put some methylenium on the wounds, dressing them with strips of cloth from flour sacks, then wrapped her whole leg with strips cut from the feed sacks. The man returned with the car. As they loaded up and headed off west, the undersheriff reportedly took several shots at them, but this did not deter them. They knocked out the back window of the car, stuck the machine gun through it, and gave the undersheriff a few warning shots. The children, Arvis and Kenneth, reportedly went to the mudflats west of Drummond and came upon this new, brand new, 1932 Ford V8 car with all of its doors open, stuck solid in the mud. Footprints led back directly to their house. Inside the vehicle were guns laying on the floor and a jar of small chains. We realized my folks were dealing with the Bonnie and Clyde Barrow gang. The car stuck in the mud was Clyde's favorite. A woman with the gang, Arsenal in the car, which they usually had, it all seemed to fit. However, others thought it was Pretty Boy Floyd. Pretty Boy Floyd, whom his family called Chalk, or Charlie, was an Oklahoma boy. Growing up in Hanson, Oklahoma, in the Salisaw area. To many of the so-called dirt farmers, outlaws like Pretty Boy symbolized justice in a nation to be judged quite unjust. 
He was like Robin Hood. Because of his generous nature, which came to paying farmers for meals, giving small portions of his loot, and ripping up mortgages and shreds before they were recorded. Elmer Steele, who drove for Pretty Boy on bank jobs, said the stories were true. It was no joke. Chalk would destroy mortgages, and more than once I saw him give money to people who really needed a boost. One of his more celebrated robberies was November 1st, 1932, where he decided to rob his hometown bank in Salisaw, Oklahoma. Ossie Elliott was driving. Charlie was next to him, dressed to the nines, in a clean shirt, necktie, and pressed suit, wearing a cap his brother-in-law, Perry Lattimore, had given him. In the back seat was George Birdwell, stroking a rag up and down the barrel of a Thompson machine gun. As they drove, farmers waved at them as everyone knew Pretty Boy, and he cheerfully waved back, according to Michael Wallace in his book, Pretty Boy. It is not as if their planned holdup at the Salisaw Bank was a secret. Several of Chalk's friends and the entire Floyd clan including various in-laws and cousins, knew it was going to take place. Chalk's grandfather, Charles Murphy Floyd, got dooted up and came in town to watch the proceedings. He took his place of honor directly across the street from the bank next to many of Pretty Boy's friends. Right before noon, they pulled up in front of the bank. Charlie and George quickly got out, leaving Elliot with the car running. Chalk held a submachine gun in the crook of his arm. He rubbed the back of his shoes on the back of his trousers. He wanted to look his very best. Pretty Boy went into the barbershop next to the bank. Otis Shipman and Tom Trotter were there. Charlie said, hello, Tom. We're going into this bank here, and you lay off the telephone. You bet we will, they said. Good to see you, fellas, said Charlie as he went out and greeted other friends on the street. They entered the bank. Only Bob Riggs, the assistant cashier, was there as everyone had gone to lunch. Keep quiet, Riggs was told. We don't want to kill anyone. While the money was being gathered, Charlie greeted everyone who came in the door and shook their hand as he knew them all. Soon nine were gathered behind the teller's cage. They scooped up $2,530 and left taking Riggs as a hostage. Chalk told him to hold on standing on the running board and he was later let off outside of town. As they left, a half dozen money bags of nickels and half dollars spilled out into the street, scattering all over the street and sidewalks for the onlookers. While this was going on, the chief of police, Bert Cotton, who of, North, who of course knew Pretty Boy, was 75 feet away in his parked police car. It was like the hometown performance of a great actor who has made it good on Broadway, said one reporter. The Indian Morning News article of September 5, 1933 stated, in the abandoned auto, 
in drum fights by Drummond, also was an unsealed letter addressed to Harvey Bailey. Although unsigned, it was speculated to be written by Charles Arthur Pretty Boy Floyd. On July 22, 1933, George Machine Gun Kelly, Alfred L. Bates, and Harvard Bailey orchestrated the kidnapping of Oklahoma oil tycoon Charles F. Unsell for a ransom of $200,000. The article in the September 6, 1933 Enid Morning News stated Bailey and Bates were to stand trial in Oklahoma City for the kidnapping. Machine Gun Kelly was still being sought. Bailey was called the Dean of American Bank Robbers. He allegedly robbed the Denver men. He got $2.7 million from the Lincoln National Bank of Lincoln, Nebraska, the largest on record, according to the Niagara Falls Gazette, September 14, 1933. In the end morning news on September 5, 1933, Bailey had described Pretty Boy Floyd as a small fry in banditry. The letter responded, You talked yourself into the joint. Now you're talking about pretty boy, and it may be if you talk fast enough, you'll miss the chair. It has always been mysterious to me why they didn't design tough guys like you to catch me. It's no object to steal a harmless man. I may be a small-time heister or hister, and you the brains of money, a $200,000 plot, still... I'm outside enjoying the few dollars I make while you are racking your enormous brain trying to beat the chair. However, the real story began at the south end of Buchanan Street in Enid on Labor Day, September 4th, 1933. At 11.15 a.m., the Enid Police Department received a call from an attendant named Freeman Scarlett at the filling station at the south end of Buchanan Street. He said a heavily armed group of four people had stopped and asked him for a Kansas road map. He believed them to be Machine Gun Kelly that everybody was looking for and Pretty Boy Floyd. According to the In the Morning News article of September 5, 1933, Police Chief John W. Burns and Deputy Sheriff Elmer Hutchinson answered the call. Ruth Ann Sailors, here in Enid, said her dad, David K. Brown, who owned and operated Enid Implement Company, was picked up by Deputy Sheriff Hutchinson. They were friends and hunting buddies, and he was present at the following events. The authorities reportedly started west on Main when they saw a four-door Ford V8 bearing Texas plates. The car cut through a filling station at Madison and Maine, then went west. They gave chase. As they neared neared the 900 block, occupants of the Ford began firing a machine gun. They raced on to Buchanan, turned south to Lahoma Road, and went west with officers close behind They turned south, east of Drummond Highway, 
but came back to the gravel about three miles north of Drummond, then turned south. At the north edge of Drummond, they turned west, going about a mile and a half unto the Drummond Flats, where the car became stuck in mud. Hutchison had left Burns at Drummond to call for help, but he was right behind the Ford. About 50 shots were fired at him from the fugitive car with the machine gun. All he had was a pistol, so he went back to Drummond to get a high-powered gun and help. In the air, Harold Kindred piloted a plane, which George Davis and Mally Smith, armed with rifles, reportedly flew over the scene and fired shots into the Ford. However, the gang had already left the car and were at the Klein farm and then to take Perry Nance's car. Hutchison picked up former peace officer Charles Allen and went back. A Model A was coming out of a farm driveway and Perry Nance was yelling at them, get my car, please get my car. They gave chase through Mino, both groups firing at each other as they went. Hutchison lost them at Ringwood. Sailor said her father told her they went back to the car stuck in the mud. When the gangster fired at them from the car, the machine gun jammed, and he beat it with a Colt 45 trying to fix it. On the floor of the car was the Colt 45, which was engraved as U.S. property and a model 1911 U.S. Army with scratches on it from the beating. It was possibly one of the ones stolen from the Enid Armory on July 7, 1933. The crook had hit the machine gun so hard that the Colt broke into pieces. Sheriff Hutchison handed the gun pieces and a pair of ladies' red high heel shoes from the car to David and told him he could keep them. David had a gunsmith put the Colt back together. Ruth Ann still has the pictures of that gun given to her by her father. Unfortunately, the actual articles were lost in the move. Three men and a woman blazed a trail across Northwest Oklahoma on Labor Day in 1933, engaging in a gun battle with officers on Enid residential streets. The landscape was littered with empty machine gun clips and abandoned automobiles. According to a September 5th, 1933 report in the Enid Morning News, the four stole a Plymouth from J.E. Galligan of Tulsa, south of Ringwood, and sped away north. Nine miles north of Alva, they wrecked the car in a culvert. A Woods County farmer named Nance came to help them and had a gun pointed at his head. They took his Model A roaster and fled north to Kansas. However, Nance gave description of the four reported in the newspaper. One man was about 30, 5 feet 11 inches tall, was dark complected and wore blue overalls and a shirt. Another man was 25, was a blonde, 5 feet 6 tall, seersucker pants, and a light shirt. The third man was 21, dark complected, a hard looker, 
with several days of beard growth and a broken nose. The woman was young, blonde, under 100 pounds, with a crude bandage around her wounded right leg. In the book, The Life and Times of Charles Arthur Floyd, Arthur Michael Wallace wrote that Pretty Boy Floyd was in a self-imposed exile in Buffalo, New York during this time. He was being sought by all police agencies for the Kansas City Massacre where four law enforcement officers were killed. Two police officers, a police chief, and an FBI special agent. J. Edgar Hoover would make him public enemy number one. So he was not one of the four, nor was Machine Gun Kelly. He was hiding at the residence of J.C. Tekanor in Memphis, Tennessee, according to the FBI. The Enid Morning News article of September 7, 1933, reported that Perry Nance of the Drummond area made a positive ID from pictures provided by Garfield County Sheriff Jay Cavan of one of the four as Irvin Blackie Thompson. He was one of the three life-termers who escaped from McAllister Penitentiary on August 30, 1933. The other two were W.J. Walker and Roy A. Johnson. Meanwhile, the four had stolen a car owned by A.E. Trummel at Sun City, Kansas. They kidnapped Trummel, and then they ran the car into a ditch near the city park in Mead, Kansas. They were attempting to steal another car from Mrs. T.E. Prather, according to the Mead Globe News of September 7, 1933. Mrs. Anson Horning was playing croquet with friends. Hearing Mrs. Prather scream, she ran and hit the robber hard in the left temple with her croquet mallet. After he dropped, his three companions fled in the car stolen from Alfred Gerber. The injured man reportedly was identified by Franco Prince as Henry Massengill, a Texas convict. Kansas Governor Alf Landon granted extradition to Oklahoma. Oklahoma Governor William H. Alpha Bill Murray provided the warrant. However, when Sheriff Cabin went to Meade, Kansas, he was refused as Kansas authorities decided Massengill would face kidnapping and robbery with firearm charges there. Also, Perry Nance denied his earlier positive identification of Thompson and refused to go see and identify Massengill. He said he was afraid that the three other remaining gang members would attack him. He sought a permit from the county attorney to carry a gun for protection, according to the Enid Morning News. Massengill pled guilty to attempted robbery with firearms and received a sentence of 20 years in the penitentiary. He never did talk and denied being with the other three robbers at the park. Bill Brock related his story as he was there 
of the highway robbery at Mead Park on Thursday, September 7, 1933. He said, on the evening of Monday, September 4, 1933, a strange car came into Mead and got stuck on the dirt road just east of the Mead City Park. There were several picnickers nearby from Fowler, and the park was full of people picnicking and playing croquet. On Monday, a picnic was planned, and it was decided to go to the Mead Park to eat supper. Mr. and Mrs. Walden Sargent, Mr. and Mrs. Bill Brock, Mr. and Mrs. Clifford Meyer, and Alfred Gerber, and Miss Lone Burlinger composed the group of picnickers. The party went to the park in the Sargent and Gerber cars. We left Fowler about 7.30 for the park, and upon arriving, the young people found that all the tables were full, and it was necessary for them to find other quarters. They decided to eat their picnic, picnic lunch on the road east of the park, about 200 yards from the Crooked Creek Bridge. The cars faced each other in order to give the picnickers light to eat their fried chicken. The ladies prepared the supper and we started to eat. It was about 8.30 at this time. The group was laughing and joking and having a great time and a good time and making plenty of noise when a tall slender man about 5 foot 10 inches tall wearing a felt hat, gray shirt and belt trousers came up and said, pardon me fellows, I'm stuck in a ditch. Will you fellows come up and pull me out? I'll pay you for it. So Alvin and I and the stranger got in Alvin's car and went to pull the stalled car out. This car was about 200 yards north of us, was on the west side of the road, just a little southeast of the swimming pool. We drove up to the back end of the car to pull them out backwards. A rope was taken from the stalled car, which consisted of four people. I tied the two cars together and Alvin gave the car a pull and the stranger and I pushed, but we were unable to make any headway. I saw that the car was full and looked inside and said, if some of you fellows will get out and push, I believe we can get this car out. So a large man weighing about 220 pounds got out helping us, but no headway was made and the rope was broken by the strenuous pull. So it was decided that the car could not be pulled out unless they got the aid of a wrecker. About that time, a man under the wheel got out holding his arm and said, boy, I was sure hurt when I ran in the ditch. This man looked to be about six foot two inches tall, weighing about 130 pounds. He had a round face and a short brown hair. Another fellow got out of the car. He was somewhat larger, about five foot six, of good build, round face, weighing about 135 pounds. These men probably ranged in age from 22 years to 28 years. One of the fellows said, are you acquainted here? We told them that we were strangers here and one of the, them went to Alvin's car and looked in it. At this time, and even five minutes before, Alvin and I knew that they were pretty bad eggs. We had a hunch anything could happen at any time. These were bad people. Then the fellow returned from Alvin's car looking very suspicious and said, all right, boys, pointing at me. That fellow saw it all when he looked in the car. 
this time, the bandit with the wounded shoulder or arm stepped back. And he pulled two guns from his hip pockets and pointed them directly at me. The other two fellows, one with two guns, the other with one, pulled them on Alvin. So we put our hands up. And they said, put those hands down. We don't want this to look like a holdup. We told them that we would do anything we could do to get them out and readily pleaded for our young lives because these bad people really had blood in their eyes. They then asked if Alvin's car had a rumble seat in it. Alvin said, no, sir. This tall man was commanded to go over where those people were playing croquet and get a bigger and better a V8 Ford if possible. Before leaving, the tall man took the woman from the front seat of the stalled car, and as he removed her to Alvin's car, we noticed her right leg was seriously wounded and hanging loosely, and she was moaning, which showed to us that she was suffering just terrible. And we could see from the moonlight that her clothing was saturated with blood. She weighed about 115 pounds and had long brown bobbed hair. Alvin and I were commanded to get into the front seat of the stalled car, and the large man was forced to get into the back seat of the same car. This man tapped me on the shoulder and said, boy, this is my car. The remainder of the picnickers had finished their supper and became suspicious, and Waldo and Clifford came to see what was the trouble. We could see them in the moonlight talking and laughing. The bandits informed us to yell and tell them to go back, but the approaching men could not hear the loud voice, which was probably very weak. Waldo and Clifford immediately walked into the trap. Upon arriving, Waldo said, What's the matter? Can't you get them out? One of the bandits said, We need a chain. Waldo stated, Oh, well, I'll get you some barbed wire. So he crosses a ditch, which was full of water, to get some wire. As he returned, one of the desperados commanded him to not get so near because the he was a desperado and had dodged 20 laws that day. Walter answered, I'm a school teacher. I won't hurt you. He and Clifford were commanded to sit on the running board of the stalled car. At this very instant, a loud screaming or crying was heard. One of the bandits said, is that a child drowning? Walter said, no, sir, that's a woman screaming. screaming. Now the bandits prepared at once to escape in Alvin's car. One of them covered us with guns while the other carried the high-powered artillery from the stalled car. Clifford and I were forced to hold the back door open while all the packages and boxes and the guns were being moved. It was necessary to make five trips to move the articles. Two round bundles wrapped in army blankets, machine guns, and ammunition of all descriptions. The band on our guard told his partner to take all the ammunition. After the artillery was moved to Alvin's care, we were commanded to line up on the road. Then we were ordered to walk south and not to run. But Waldo could not resist the temptation and started to run. And Waldo said, now that's, they're nothing but a bunch of kids. The bandits then drove west through Meade. The bandits seemed to be wounded and scratched, and their clothes showed evidence of a great loss of blood. After the bandits had left, 
The heavyset man stated his name was Trummel of Wilmore. He stated the bandit, bandits kidnapped him near his home and took his car. All they talked about on the trip was a gun battle they'd had that morning and also the wreck they had. The woman in the car was thought to be seriously, seriously wounded. This experience Monday evening will never be forgotten as long as we live. While we were in danger during the entire time, we, had, we were in constant fear that the woman would come up and get in the affray, that the women would, which would even be worse. Alvin, Clifford, and myself realized that the worst could happen at any time, but we had a hard time keeping Waldo from talking. In closing, we hope that no one here will be forced to experience such an ordeal, and as for ourselves, one time is enough. The Meade County Press of January 7th, 1937 reported, one of the men who escaped in the Gerber car was Clyde Barrow, and the woman was scar-smoking Bonnie Parker. Gerber's car was later found at Wichita Falls, Texas. One of Bonnie and Clyde's hideouts was the Old River Grocery and Market in Wichita Falls, Texas, where they had an arrangement with the law. They would leave the outlaws alone if they didn't cause any trouble in the area. At the Drummond Flats, the stuck car was Clyde's favorite. The recovered Colt 45 was probably stolen from the Enid Armory. Machine gun clips in the car were from a BAR, Browning Automatic Rifle, which was Clyde's favorite. Bonnie was a natural strawberry blonde and had a badly injured leg from a car wreck on June 10, 1933. Her right leg was burned and she had to hop or be carried. She was probably not shot in the leg. The scars probably were reopened as she fell in the mud. Ruth Ann Saylor said her father, David Brown, told her all the eyewitnesses thought it was Bonnie and Clyde, but did not reveal them out of fear of being killed. Teresa Taylor and her dad, Charles Dean Henneke, a cousin to Raymond Klein, who provided the eyewitness story on the farm, said they asked the undersheriff not to publicize this visit because they were afraid of retaliation. The letter in the car to Harvey Bailey could have been written by Clyde and Bonnie. Harvey considered them as petty thieves, hardly bank robbers, which had some truth to it. They commonly robbed small grocery stores and gas stations. The banks they robbed were not very successful. In one case, they only got $80. But Bonnie and Clyde did return to Enid, Oklahoma, on September 4, 1933. Sheriff Will Zuckerman of Dodge City, Kansas, had a conference with Garfield County officials and decided the four were Bonnie and Clyde, Henry Massingale, and Jack Sherman, according to an article that Ruth Ann Sailors had in her archive. The in the morning news of September 8, 1933, reported that as a result of this wild escapade, the Enid Police Department received nine high-powered rifles of modern type, and the Sheriff's Department received a Browning automatic rifle, a BAR, Clyde Barrow's favorite gun, to cope with bandits, machine gunners, and other desperados. Finally, 
The end of morning news of September 12, 1933, reported the Garfield County Sheriff's Department was looking for the Joker who sent a package to them containing three toy croquet mallets. The sheriffs and two deputies' names were written on each mallet head as a final public reaction to the ending of a two-state gun battle with Bonnie and Clyde, not by law enforcement, but by a woman with a croquet mallet.